The doctrine of justification in Christian religion is one of the most crucial and vital doctrines to the Christian faith. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the doctrine of justification that we hold to, that we believe, is, is one of the key doctrines that actually separates Christianity from the rest of the religions in the world. It is one of our most distinct beliefs as Protestant Christians. The doctrine of justification really became especially vital in, 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 in part of the conversation in the Western world during the Protestant Reformation. This is one of the primary differences we have with Roman Catholics is our doctrine of justification. As a matter of fact, during the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, uh, there were many, many things that the Reformers took issue with in Roman Catholicism, but they boiled it down to the two most vital issues that separated us. One of these they called the formal principle of the Reformation. And the former principle is what was known as the, the doctrine of sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And this was the issue of authority, right? And then that sort of has to be the foundation of all religion. In other words, before you can talk about, well, what does justification mean? What is God like? What are we supposed to do? Before you can answer any of those questions, you have to first answer, where do we go to find the answers to those questions? So they considered the formal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, but then they had what was called the material principle of the Reformation. And they were saying that other than the foundation of authority, the most important issue that the reformers sought to reform the church of was the church's understanding of justification. The material principle of the Reformation was the doctrine of justification. In fact, one uh, reformer said that the, the doctrine of justification is the hinge by which the door of salvation swings. And so what we are going to do is begin as we finished up the pastoral epistles, we are going to start a new study in the book of Galatians. So I would invite you to turn to the book of Galatians. And we're going to do this for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, I, I, I kind of decided to do this at the last second because I think it's going to be a really helpful partner to so much of what we learned in the pastoral epistles. Um, as I was meditating and thinking upon all that we gleaned from the pastoral epistles, one thing was constantly coming up, which was this issue of godliness, this issue of obedience, of, of living lives separate from the world. And so, as we work through the, the book of Galatians, may we never forget that important principle we learned. May we never lose sight of how important good works, obedience to God is in the Christian life. We, we want to maintain that all throughout the book of Galatians. But at the same time, we can think of works wrongly where the good works and the obedience that the Bible commands us to have can seep in to other doctrines where they don't belong. And that doctrine, namely, specifically, is the doctrine of justification. And so what we learned about in the pastoral epistles, not the only thing, but one of the things we constantly looked at was the, the issue of good works and obedience and faithfulness to God and living good and holy, upright lives. But now we are going to balance that by also reminding ourselves, and this will be a, the issue of the book of Galatians, which is that while good works are important and mandatory and necessary, necessary, they are not the grounds by which God forgives us. Your good works are not what merits your salvation. Your good works are not what earns you 
right standing before God, which is the doctrine of justification. So even as I'm sitting here talking about justification and you're thinking, I've heard that word, but I don't really know what it means, or maybe I've never heard that word, I don't understand that, you're not behind, because that's what we're going to be looking at. There are other things that come up in the book of Galatians, but primarily the entire book of Galatians is a small letter on the doctrine of justification. And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that we understand and grasp and know this doctrine. And so it's going to be an important reminder to us that while good works are mandatory and necessary and good, they are not the basis upon which God forgives us and saves us. And that is what we are going to see in the book of Galatians. But as I have grown accustomed to doing, when we start a book, we are always wanting to look at its general context. Again, we're not going to go into extreme academic detail, but it's just helpful to kind of know a little bit about the surrounding of the book of Galatians before we break into it. And as I have done, I kind of like the old uh, journalism uh, cliche, the who, what, where, when, and why. And so that is what we are going to cover today as well as the first five verses of the book of Galatians. But let's start with some of the background. It's actually easier to start with the what. So what is the book of Galatians? Well, it's what we call an epistolary letter. It's an epistle. So again, this is not, that all that simply means is that it is a personal letter that was written to either a person or to a group of people. It's a letter. So it's not apocalyptic literature. It's not poetry. Um, it's not analogy. It's not, histori- it's not history. All right, this was a personal letter. It's an epistle. And it was written by the Apostle Paul. You can look at verse 1. The Apostle Paul, he gives a, a, a mostly standard um, greeting to the, uh, in Galatians that he gives it to most of his letters. I mean, there's some differences always between them, but this is pretty standard for Paul. And he begins by saying, Paul, an apostle. Now, we'll, we'll get into verse 1 more in a minute here, but we see that it's being attributed to the Apostle Paul. Now, here's what's uh, fascinating to note. Uh, obviously, anyone can write a letter and claim to be the Apostle Paul, and so Christians throughout church history have done more so than just look at what the letter says, but they've studied the letter, its history, and uh, a variety of other things to determine, is this a false autograph? Uh, was this claimed to be the Apostle Paul, but not truly is, or is this genuine? And, and here's what's interesting to notice about the book of Galatians, is that it is uh, almost without doubt among all contemporary scholarship that it is authentic to Paul. And here's why I say that. You do not have to be a Christian to study the Bible, There are lots of non-Christian or just extremely liberal Christians who engage in what we call textual criticism, the study of the New Testament books. And so because of that, anytime you study the New Testament at an academic level, you're going to get a variety of opinions. You will never find anything that is completely agreed upon by scholars, and that is because our, our presuppositions, our religious biases that we take into the field of study affects things dramatically. So because not everyone is a Christian, they're not all coming to the same conclusions. So you are never, if, if, if your ultimate authority is, is scholarship, you're really not going to know very much about the Bible. Because every book of the Bible is doubted by some scholar somewhere as, as being authentic. And there are books outside of the Bible that some scholar somewhere thinks should be in it. There's, there's not uh, agreement. But, but here's the reason I bring all this up. The pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, among unbelieving scholars, not among Christian scholars, but among unbelieving scholars, there's, there's a, it is highly questioned that the Apostle Paul actually wrote these things. As I said in our introduction there, I reject that. I think the evidence is overwhelming that they are authentic to Paul. 
Um, but there's a lot of debate, and, and there's a lot of Pauline letters and other letters attributed to other apostles that are highly questioned. But there's a small group of letters that basically shares unanimous opinion. Again, there are still some who disagree, but Galatians is one of those letters that there is almost no scholarly disagreement that this is an ancient document written by the Apostle Paul. Even non-Christian liberalized scholars will still say, okay, yeah, this is definitely one of Paul's. So this is most assuredly the Apostle Paul uh, writing this letter. And so the who, it's the Apostle Paul, so who is he writing to? Well, we get that in verse 2. He says, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So what's interesting to note about that is he's not writing to a single church. He's writing to a plurality of churches, to the churches in Galatia. So Galatia in Paul's day, um, I, I, I would be willing to bet that you probably, not very many people in here are able to just off the, you know, the, the drop of a, at the drop of a dime be able to picture the country of Turkey. Uh, but if you go onto a map and look at Turkey later, uh, modern day Turkey, if you were just basically take the center of that and draw a, a fairly wide vertical stripe down, that was essentially the region of Galatia. It was a narrow um, vertical stretch of land and so what is happening is obviously Paul is not writing to one specific church, but he's writing to multiple churches in this region. And so this was a letter that was essentially supposed to go to one church and be read, and then that church would probably make their own copy. And then whoever was carrying the letter would then take it to another church in Galatia, and it would also be read, and then they would make their own copies. And this is why, just as a side note, this is why the New Testament has such incredible manuscript uh, support, and this is why it's become so um, convenient and, and relatively easy for scholars to know um, what the apostles wrote, unlike any other document from its time period. Um, because of the way it was transmitted, people would make copies and keep them of their own and send them others and they'd make their own copies. So we have multiple lines of copyists making copies all over the place rather than a single line where it can be edited and then that gets caught up forever and you have no way of checking it. But rather the Christians have copies coming from all over the regions, different points. So no one group, no one person can control the message. Uh, but that's for another lecture series. So Paul is writing to a region. He's writing to a group of churches in a particular region. Now, is that, that actually brings us into um, the, the, the where, right, where Paul was writing it from in the dating. And the, how you understand the region he's writing to will actually affect a little bit about um, the dating of this letter and where Paul was writing it from. I don't think it's going to affect our interpretation of the letter, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But just to give you a brief oversight, uh, the, the region of North Galatia was very different than the region of Southern Galatia. And, and there's debate over whether he was writing primarily to the south or primarily to the north. And whichever one he was writing to will affect when we think he wrote it. But no matter what debate you take, I, I take the Southern theory, which makes the letter earlier than some believe. But no matter what you take, here's the point, this is extremely primitive. No matter which one you take, this is a very early letter. It dates as early as 48 and goes to as late as 55 AD. But what we agree on, no matter what you take, is that this is one of the earliest Christian testimonies we have available to us. This is extremely early and extremely authentic. It's really um, quite an amazing letter. So that, again, that affects where Paul himself was writing from. The northern view would take him as writing from 
Ephesus, the southern view, there's some debate. So we don't quite know where Paul's writing from, but here's where we can confidently say, when it comes to where was Paul, there's really only a couple things that matters. Was he in prison or not? <laughs> right? that's, that's basically Paul's life. He's either writing from prison or he's not, and we, uh, he wasn't writing from prison in this. He was writing some of the pastoral epistles from prison. Um, but he was a free man when he wrote this, um, as this was much earlier in his ministry than some of the other letters. So it really is a fascinating letter. Um, there's a lot of uh, fascinating things to know about the history and the context. But primarily for our purpose today, I want us to break into the why. And then that will break us into the text. Why did Paul write this? Well, I'm going, briefly going to summarize the whole letter, so you're going to have to kind of take me at my word for a moment, and then as we go through this series, then you will be able to uh, check me, if you will. Uh, but essentially, Paul has written this letter because the people of God in Galatia are turning to a false religion, and they don't even know it. Paul, if you read through the book of Acts, Paul knew these people. He preached in this area. He probably helped start and plant these churches. Paul knew these people received the gospel. Paul knew these people received the word of God. He knew that they had it. He knew that they believed it and they were practicing it. But as Paul does, he eventually leaves a region. He, he leaves. And when Paul left, somehow word got back to him of what all those churches throughout Galatia are now believing. They think it's Christian. They don't think it's a problem. They think they've, they've stuck with the same thing. But people have come in and sort of altered what they believe about the gospel, altered what they believe about Jesus. Paul is hearing it and Paul is panicked. Paul is saying, whoa, that is not what they heard from me. That is not the message they heard from us. That is not even Christianity. So what you're going to find is that it's a very intense letter. The letter is intense almost all the way through because Paul is writing to rebuke and correct these people. And it's, and it's a, a certain kind of rebuke, right? Anytime someone's wrong or in sin, we want to be rebuked. But what we're going to find in this letter is that their error is so significant, they have actually cut themselves off from the Christian faith. They have cut themselves off from salvation. So this is no just kind of normal rebuke of sin. This is life and death. Paul is trying to save these people from eternal torment. It's, it's a very severe letter. And in the process, what we are going to find is the Apostle Paul is going to do something very helpful for us even today, and that is he is going to help clarify for us what is the gospel? What is it? And how do we receive it? How do we apply it to ourselves? And what we're going to see is the answer to those questions matter a lot. They matter a lot. So because the letter is intense, let me warn you, some of the sermons are going to be intense. In order to stay true to the text, we have to do that. The Apostle Paul is writing out of fear. He's writing out of love. But he is essentially writing this letter to get the Galatian churches back on track. He's trying to correct them and bring them back into the Christian faith. And so the reason this is so important is because even in our introduction where Paul is merely just introducing the letter, we see him very skillfully, very artistically, powerfully sort of sneaking in two important elements that will be foundation stones throughout the rest of the letter. Two important elements. So let's read the introduction and then we will talk about those two elements. Galatians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1, if you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. 
Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As I said, there are many elements in this greeting that are standard to Paul that you would find elsewhere, but there are some differences, some nuances, and I think that they were intentionally put in to properly set the tone for everything else that's about to come. And the first thing that Paul addresses with with, with a little bit more precision than he often does in his greetings is his own authority, right? Paul is addressing his own authority. That's the first thing we're going to look at this morning in our introduction to the book of Galatians, which is Paul's authority. Paul mentions that he is an apostle. Paul, an apostle, and then he clarifies something. Well, why is Paul an apostle? According to whose authority? Who made Paul a ruler? Who made Paul have authority over me? Why should I listen to Paul? Who says? Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul reminds them of his Christian testimony that Paul was not appointed an apostle by the other apostles. That still would carry a lot of weight. If I was a first century Christian, I would obey the apostles. So if the apostles told me someone else was an apostle, I would listen to that person. So even if he was appointed by laying on of hands and the other apostles appointed him, we would still be, you know, called to obey him. But Paul takes it a step further. He says, no human being made me an apostle. No one laid their hands on me and and declared me an apostle. Well, we see in the book of Acts, right after Judas left, there was an empty spot. And who remembers how they chose Judas's replacement in the book of Acts? I think I heard someone say it. They drew lots. He was appointed by, well, I guess you would say God. The book of Proverbs says that God controls the lot. But it wasn't the kind of divine appointment that Paul had. Right? Do you remember Paul's testimony? On, he's, he's, you know, he's always pictured as being on a donkey and falling, being knocked off his horse, we say. Uh, we don't actually know that. It was probably likely a, a man of his stature probably wouldn't walk the great distance that he was walking um, to Damascus. But remember, Paul is on his way to actually persecute Christians, and he has a miraculous visitation from the risen Christ. And it blinds him, and the glory overwhelms him. And, and the other guards, they don't even really know what's going on. They're not having the same experience. They just think Paul's going crazy. But Paul has a face-to-face encounter with the risen Christ, which he then gets saved and is commissioned by Christ himself to become an apostle. So Paul's saying, why should you listen to me? Well, because Jesus Christ visited me, transformed me, and he's the one who commissioned me. He's the one who gave me this authority. And so what was likely happening, we don't know for sure, but what was likely happening is the false teachers, actually we're going to find as we go through the letter, that Paul refers to them as pseudodelphoids, or false brethren, false brothers. People who claimed to be Christians, claimed to be one of us, but really truly were not, came into the church and were most likely trying to steer people away from Paul's authority. They probably recognized that what we believe is slightly different from the Apostle Paul, but why should we listen to that guy anyway? I mean, after all, Paul himself describes his own apostleship at one point in the New Testament as being as one untimely born. Why should we listen to Paul? Because you have to realize all the other apostles, they walked with Christ for three years. The apostle Paul was not even a Christian when Jesus was living. 
He didn't even believe in Jesus. He didn't love Jesus then. The other apostles, they knew Jesus. They walked with him for years. Paul didn't have that. Why should we listen to Paul? So they were steering the authority away from Paul, and Paul's authority was being questioned among the people. And so that's why Paul begins in his introduction by reminding them, I want you to know Jesus Christ is the one who gave me this authority. No man, this isn't historical data. This is divine appointment. Although he does so in a unique way, though. As Paul introduces us, or forgive me, reminds us of his apostolic calling, he does so in such a way where he, he really brings in the very subtle but beautiful Trinitarian uh, theology into it. Because if you were to read through uh, Paul's testimony in, in your Bibles, the Father wouldn't be mentioned. It's, it's all Jesus. Jesus comes and, and Jesus tells Paul what to do and, and there's no mention of the Father. Yet, Paul directly attributes his calling to the Father, right? He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So Paul says, even though if you, as you read my testimony, Jesus was the only one mentioned, both of them called me. And so what Paul is recognizing here is that while Jesus and the Father are distinct, their wills are always in unity, they always share a will. Because if Jesus did it, Paul's assumption is it was the Father's will. He was doing this at the Father's commissioning. As a matter of fact, we see this, uh, I don't want us to jump the gun too much, but we see this again in the heart of the gospel itself. Notice what Paul says in um, verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, he says, The Lord Jesus who gave himself... So Paul reminds us of what Jesus says in the Gospels, that no one takes my life from me, I lay it down on my own accord. Paul reminds us that Jesus was not reluctantly sent to earth against his wishes. But as Philippians 2 says, he humbled himself. So Jesus came to earth of his own volition. It was his own choice to die. Yet, although Jesus is the one who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, this was according to what at the end of verse 4? According to the will of our God and Father. So Jesus gave himself, but this was simultaneously obeying God's will. And so Paul says this is the same thing as it relates to my authority. Yes, it was Jesus who called me. It was Jesus who visited me. But really the proper way of understanding it is God the Father who called me and he used Jesus as his instrument to do so. And their will is always the same. So who wants Paul to be an apostle? Who do we know for sure okays Paul's authority? Jesus Christ and God the Father. So now try to question it. Now who are you truly questioning when you reject Paul? You're not just rejecting the Son, you're rejecting the Father's will as well. This is a powerful testimony. That it is both God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul has been made an apostle. But the Trinity is subtly in there too because he reminds us of what God the Father did to, to, to sort of validate this beautiful relationship the Father has with the Son. The Father who called Paul through Jesus is the same one, verse 1, second half, who raised Jesus from the dead. And this is a very often testimony of the New Testament that God the Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And it makes sense because Jesus' sacrifice was to and for the Father. So the Father's resurrection of the Son was essentially the Father vindicating the Son's work. 
It was the father saying, yes, I approve of this work. I accept it, which is what Isaiah 53 prophesied all along. It said that the father would see the suffering of the son and be pleased and be satisfied. So this makes sense. But you can read through the book of Romans and you will actually see that at least one time, it's the Holy Spirit who is credited with raising Jesus from the dead. Paul tells us that the same spirit sent from God who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. So who raised Jesus from the dead? The Holy Spirit or the Father? Yes. This is God the Father's will enacted through the power of his spirit. The same way in the Bible, sometimes Jesus is credited with creating all things. The Father is credited with creating all things. They have a different role, but their wills are the same. They are in harmony, and so it is right to credit them both in different ways. Same thing we see here. So Paul's entire apostolic ministry and the gospel itself are both being sort of mediated and revealed to us through the beautiful Trinitarian working. But essentially what Paul has done here is he has leveraged the Trinity on behalf of his apostleship. Paul says, who made me, who made me an apostle? Why should you listen to me? Well, if, if, if you believe in the Father, Spirit, and Son, then you should listen to me because they're the ones who are at work in my calling. He doesn't utilize any man. He doesn't utilize any creed. He doesn't utilize tradition. He doesn't utilize empirical evidence. He utilizes the direct revelation and calling of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So he really hits them hard with his authority. Paul's authority is being challenged. But he throws one additional thing into. He says in verse 2 this, And all the brothers who are with me. Now, sometimes if the New Testament begins that way, sometimes what it's getting at is the apostles did not always handwrite their own letters. Sometimes they would have someone else write it for them, dictate what they were saying. But we know that's not the case here because you're going to find at the end of our sermon series, Paul, at the end of this book, says that he handwrote this letter. Paul wrote it himself. So why would Paul throw that in in verse 2, and all the brothers with me? You see, what Paul is doing here, it's very subtle, it's very sneaky, but it's very powerful. He's not only leveraging his authority, his divine authority to, to get them to listen to him, but he's leveraging the Christian testimony as well. Right? He's essentially saying that what I am writing to you to correct you and to rebuke you is not just coming from an apostle, but all the Christians with me are overseeing this message. They all agree. So if you keep going down the path you're going, you're not just disagreeing with the Trinity, you're not just disagreeing with the Holy Apostle, you're disagreeing with the fellowship of the brothers and sisters who are with me, and they recognize that you're an error also. You disagree with God, you disagree with the Apostles, and you disagree with the church. He's leveraging their testimony. So who is ultimately the one writing this letter? God, an Apostle, and the Christian church is writing this letter to wayward churches to say, come back. Come back in fellowship with us. Come back under proper authority. Come back to God. Come back to us. So the first half of this letter that is written to the churches of Galatia is all about the apostle's authority, leveraging his authority. But the second half, of which we have already broken into, is a reminder of the gospel itself. And this is important because the whole letter, again, is about a church that is drifting away from this gospel. So Paul, the, the, the very churches that are questioning Paul's authority and drifting from the gospel, Paul is writing this introduction to remind them of his authority and remind them of the gospel. You see that important correlation there? 
So what is the gospel? He reminds us, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. This is what we call in, in Christian theological circles, substitutionary atonement. If you read throughout church history, we're going to talk a lot about this, especially as Good Friday approaches. But if you read throughout church history, you'll find competing what we call atonement theories. People who interpret why Jesus died differently and what was the purposes of his death and what did it accomplish. Now, there are some atonement theories that I, in our church, reject altogether. Now, there's a lot of atonement theories that are true. They're just incomplete. Right? So, for example, one atonement theory says the reason Jesus died is to give us an example of how we are to endure persecution. That's true. Peter makes that very clear. If you read through Peter's first epistle, Peter says that Jesus died leaving us an example so that when you are persecuted, you may as well respond the same way he did. So Jesus did die to leave you an example of how to be holy in the face of persecution. That's why he died. But the problem is, is to cut it off there and say there's no other reason for the death of Christ. And that's what a lot of these atonement theories do. So a lot of them are true. They're just incomplete. But the, we would argue the primary reason for the death of Christ, the, the, the ultimate reason that Jesus died on a cross was for our sins. Jesus was dying to pay the price for our sins. He was ransoming us. He was purchasing us. He was redeeming us. He was buying us back. The book of Colossians says that we had a record of debt with God. And Jesus canceled our record of debt by nailing it to the cross. Jesus cleared our debt. He paid our payment. He forgave us our sins through the sacrifice of himself. Jesus died for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. But then the Apostle Paul clarifies this in, in a way that's somewhat bizarre. Uh, it's not entirely unique because the Apostle Peter, in his famous sermon in the book of Acts, when he, uh, right after Pentecost, they're filled with the Spirit and then they start preaching. And Peter, as he preaches the gospel to the Jews for the first time, he uses this phrase, Acts 2.40. Uh, but this is a phrase that, that is sometimes kind of hard to, to, to really understand the details of because Paul says that Jesus died not just to deliver us from our sins or to save us from our sins, but to deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus' death delivers you from this evil age. And the reason I say that's, uh, if, if I'm speaking for myself, that's kind of hard to understand sometimes because if you understand it wrongly, it's untrue, right? No one in here has been delivered from this present evil age. We're all in it and experiencing it, right? I mean, right now there's the whole coronavirus scare, Right, viruses and sickness and death, that's, that's the result of evil, the evil of men. That's something God is eventually going to eradicate. So obviously, half the country is quarantined right now. So have we really been delivered from this present evil age? It seems like we're still very much in it. You see, what Paul is not talking about, what Peter is not talking about in this phrase is that you're going to be, you know, raptured out of this present evil age or the present, you'll have this holy, miraculous bubble around you that no evil can possibly get to you anymore. But there's a number of things implied in this phrase. First and foremost, it implies that we are rescued from this present evil age in the fact that we are rescued from perpetrating and continuing it. Let the rest of the world continue in their evil. We've been rescued from that. 
But it also reminds us that the gospel saves us to a new age to come. That while we currently live in a present evil age, there is a new age coming that does not have that evil, which is implied here. And that is what the gospel is offering to bring us into. It is offered to bring us into a present evil age. But it also creates in our mind this understanding of how we are transferred from one domain into another. That we were once children of the world, we were once children of the devil, and we belong to the world and we're of worldly things. And by the gospel, by the sacrifice of Christ, God the Father has transferred us into another world. Not physically, but spiritually, we belong to a new master. We have a new father, and we are part of a new world, which is not of this world at all. We see this, turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. I I think this is what Paul's getting at. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Look at uh, just verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 begins with a he, which is talking specifically about God the Father. And, And notice what the Apostle Paul, writing in Colossians, says about God the Father. He says this in verse 13. That he has delivered us from the domain of darkness... And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when you get your sins forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ, when you come into Christ, you are spiritually transferred. Your citizenship changes. You get a new ID card, a new registration. You are no longer belonging to the world. You no longer are a citizen of the domain of darkness where, where the first John says that Satan is your father. You are no longer a child of Satan belonging to the dominion of darkness, but you have been transferred in exchange now into the kingdom of the Son with a new father, a new spiritual transformation. So this idea of being of the gospel rescuing us from this present evil age, it doesn't mean that this evil age we live in isn't going to affect you or touch you or be a part of you, but it simply means that you are not of it. Peter talks about we are sojourners. This world is not our home. We don't live here. This isn't our home. We belong to another world. We belong from another place. We have been born of God. And then if you go back to the book of Galatians, he ends his introduction Again, uh, Jesus' death was according to the will of God, our Father. And then he ends with what we call a doxology, which is a praise to God. After thinking about what Jesus has done, what words can we possibly come up with to to say thanks? I think the best we have is something like this, verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. After reminding us of this great gospel, he bursts out into doxological praise of God. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is all we can do in response to the gospel. That Jesus Christ gave himself in accordance with the Father's will to deliver us from the domain of darkness by dying for our sins. Praise be to God. And so in conclusion, I just want to remind us of some of the things we already discussed, what we're going to experience as we continue through the book of Galatians. 
Our study through the Galatians is going to do three important things. It's going to greatly clarify the gospel for us, specifically how we receive the gospel. So Jesus died, but what do I do with that? How do I get me some of that? How do I make that applicable to me? Galatians is going to very much define and clarify how we make the sacrifice of Christ available to ourselves. It's going to greatly clarify the gospel. And by doing that, that leads us to our second thing, we're going to specifically look at the doctrine of justification. Uh, Justification is how we are justified before God. How is it that a sinner stands before God and God looks at a sinner and says, you're not a sinner? How do we get there? How do we cross that divide? How do I become righteous? That's the doctrine of justification. It's really the heart of the gospel in many ways, and that's what Paul is going to teach us. That's the doctrine we're going to learn throughout the book of Galatians, which is justification, how we are justified, how we can be made right with God, even though we are sinners who are not right with God. But there's another important thing that we're going to look at, and this will be, I think, really enlightening for all of us, is we're going to look at the, what we call the Gentile relationship to Moses. What you're going to find, I don't want to give too much away, I want to let the text excite us ourselves, but the, the, the error that was brought into the Christian church was essentially all surrounding the, the Mosaic law. And think about it, I mean, this is the law that God inspired. Moses is a big deal. This was a holy law. This was a perfect law. This was a righteous law. And this was the law that God's people had been following for hundreds of years. And from the perspective of the false teachers in the book of Galatians, we're going to clarify that this is not Paul's message. But from their perspective, Paul has come in and says, away with it. Moses' law, get rid of it. We don't need it. So we have Jewish Christians who are very leery of Paul because he just wants to to just get rid of Moses. And so the Jewish people were forcing Christians in strict adherence to Moses' law. They were saying, if you want to be saved, yeah, you need Jesus, you need the sacrifice of Christ, yeah, you need all that, but you still need the law. You need to obey God's law in order to be justified. So Paul's not only going to answer that question, is that true? Do you have to obey the Mosaic law, in order to be saved. Paul's going to answer that, but in so doing, he is going to further elaborate, well, what is the Gentile relationship to the Mosaic law, right? We live thousands of years after that law was given, and that law was given to a very specific people group who, I don't know your ancestry DNA results, but just by judging, I look around, I don't think many people in this room, if any at all, belong to that people group. So it was, Moses' law was given to a people that we don't belong to, and it was given a long time ago. So what do we do with it? What relationship do Gentiles have to Moses? Paul's not going to give an exhaustive answer to that. We have to scour through the entire New Testament to give a fuller answer of that, but he's going to lay some important foundations of what, do, what relationship do I have to the law of Moses? So we will clarify the gospel, we will define the doctrine of justification, and we will learn more about Gentile relationship to the Mosaic law. But as I said, this letter will be at times very harsh. It may even come across as extreme. But the issue involved is so valuable, the issue is so important that it is so necessary for us to deal with Paul, how he writes and what he says. Paul writes this letter with urgency, with anger, with worry, and with love. And so it is my prayer and the prayer for our church that this letter written to the Galatian churches 
would be edifying to our church and that God would use his word to bless us as we always pray.